You're listening to a podcast from Hicksville Cornerstone Church. For more information about the church, visit us at hickscc.org. That's H-I-X-C-C.org. Thanks for listening. I know I typically pray um, after I read the text this morning. I'm going to pray before it. And we're starting the Sermon on the Mount today. And uh, if I'm honest, I've been, it's one of those texts that is just so rich, um, I feel unworthy to preach it. And so I'm going to go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Um, Bow your heads with me. Father God, I pray that you would use this text to pierce our hearts, not just reveal sin, but may we awe and wonder at the God that you are. And make us into a church that would reflect you to our community. Sanctify us by the washing of your word. And Lord, thank you for being a God that offers blessing. Oh, how great of a God you are. How great of a king. Be with us today. In your son's name I pray. Amen. Um, I've looked forward to this text for months, knowing it's going to come. You can't think of Matthew without thinking of the Sermon on the Mountain. But as I looked at the text this week, I, I did not feel like I'm a good enough preacher and not worthy enough to touch it. I didn't feel adequate. Um, and I know that's very much the work of Satan working in my office throughout the week. Um, You see, the Sermon on the Mount, which covers chapters 5 through 7 of the Gospel of Matthew, is one of the most profound and humbling and honest passages within the text of Scripture. If you uh, have a Bible with red lettering, you get to this portion of Matthew, and the pages are painted. And it's not that that means that this section of Scripture is more important necessarily than the rest of it, but Matthew, being moved by the Holy Spirit, places it here. And your heart can have two reactions when you look at a text like this. Your heart can be overwhelmed by the law. And you can see it and be like, Lord, I can't, I can't live up to this. The stuff with anger, the stuff with lust, the stuff with you name it. You can look at this text and it pierce your soul so profoundly that you're just overwhelmed by the assumption that how could you stand or how could a holy and good God pursue you? Church, child of God. Don't let the devil twist the words of Scripture to damn your soul. For Christ speaks these words not out of judgment towards his people, but out of love. And as we look at this text, the call to holiness might seem daunting. But it is by following these commands that we find life. We find sanctification, fulfillment, peace, 
It is in these commands and analogies that we actually come face to face with a holy and magnificent God. Young people in the audience. Blaze, Jordas, Cross, Mary, Paul, Leona, Wayne. If there is one section of scripture I would encourage you to dwell in, to rest in, in your youth, knowing and understanding and applying these three chapters of scripture will help you reap such a harvest in years to come. My prayer is that you don't neglect these three chapters like many of us saints in the room have and have come to regret it. Older saints, I don't say that out of judgment. Uh, It's not that I think that we have cherished these too late in life, but we cannot cherish these too little. It is impossible. The word of God is precious, and some theologians have called these three chapters the pinnacle of Scripture. And may we all rest here, young and old. At some point, I want to preach this as a whole. I want to memorize all three chapters and get up here before you one morning and just give it to you. That is not today. But my prayer is that Today, this afternoon, I I hope that you go home. You've already fixed the clocks. Turn off whatever's distracting you. Set your phone to silent and rest and dwell in these three chapters. Read these three chapters today. Don't read it like you do Facebook. Don't read it like you do Twitter. Don't read it like you do whatever news station you go to on the internet to open up your day. Sit. Let it, let it pierce you. Let it roll through your heart. And may we see the love of our Lord. I pray that you see the love of your Lord for you in the midst of this text. That would be my challenge to you this afternoon. I'm going to read it. Please stand with me. So read the Sermon on the Mount. I'm just going to go through the Beatitudes today. Seeing the crowds, he, that's Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth. And taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness For they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful. For they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. I had every intention of getting through like three verses this week. I got through one and I had to trim it. So it's going to be another one of those sermons that's kind of a deep dive. It does do a really good job, I feel, of building the rest of the Beatitudes for you. So it serves as two purposes. But verse 1 sets the scene, right? If you're an actor in the room, it's those italics as you look through the, the list of what's going to unfold on the scene. And it's seeing the crowds. He went up the mountain. And when he sat down. His disciples came to him. Notice what's happening here. The God of the universe in the person of Jesus is going to give instructions to his people from the mountain. The parallels are not lost on the first century Jewish reader. Moses the great teacher of the Old Testament, who sought the very face of God upon the mountain, who waited upon the instruction of the Lord, the same beats are still present that we found on another mountain. Hundreds of miles south, thousands of years prior, We listened to it earlier as we looked at Exodus. I want you to hear the echoes again. I want you to, if there's an application today, I want you to walk away from is that the echoes within the text of scripture are so profound, they speak and influence one another. And as we look at this text, as we know this text, we can marvel at what God has given us within the midst of this text because the echoes are profound. Don't miss that today. Don't miss that today. Here's what it says in Exodus 19, 2 through 6. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. I want you to see the echoes that are taking place within the two texts. They're profound. They're honest. They're there. And that is this. Israel encamped before the mountain as they received instruction from God. In both places. 
Now, the Sermon on the Mount is believed to have taken place somewhere near Capernaum. The Gospels do not list a specific mountain. I think that's intentional. If you know anything about the Jews at the time and the pagans around the region, they set up shrines on mountains like we set up McDonald's in small towns. Okay, They just existed everywhere. So the reason I think that they don't list the mountain is because Matthew and God and his leading didn't want another shrine set up. They didn't want the place to be worshipped. They wanted the words that the Lord had spoken to be understood and and treasured. They didn't want the place to be treasured. He wanted the words to be treasured. I I think that's why he does not give us the mountain. Either way, a crowd gathered at the foot of the mountain. Why? Well, we know from the previous verses, the one verse before, chapter 4, verse 25, it talks about the crowds following Jesus because miracles were being done. They came to see the miracle worker. They encamped literally near him. The miracles of Jesus had cemented into the minds of the, those following him that these words were divine. His words were from God. His words were true and his command should be followed. Likewise. In Exodus 19, Israel has come out of Egypt having seen the miracles of God in their midst. They had seen manna from heaven two chapters prior. Every morning they see that. They trust the words of God because they've seen the work of God. And likewise, Jesus, the bread of heaven, the manna from heaven, the bread of life, he too has set out to do the Father's will. And the people will listen to his commands because of it. And so they encamp upon the mountain. And notice what Moses does here. He goes up to God, up and down the mountain. Moses, one representative of the whole people. Sound familiar? Are your ears beginning to itch? I think I've heard this before. The one representative as a people approaches a holy God on the mountain to receive instructions. And Moses would receive instructions, most uniformly in what we call the Ten Commandments. Now, I just want to remind you of this quickly. I covered this when we were going through um, Ecclesiastes, but in case you missed that Sunday, I want you to be reminded of it. While the Ten Commandments are laws given to us by God for our good, the Ten Commandments reveal the very character of who God is. Think about it. Do not have any other gods before me. Why? Because I'm the only God. Any other God is worth it. I'm the only one. He's revealing something about himself to his people. Two, don't set up other idols. We know that our hearts are idol factories. We will worship anything that we come across that we think will give us some pleasure or satisfaction. And he's saying none of that's worth anything. Don't set up idols. Three. Do not take the name of the Lord in vain. Words matter to God. For they create and they destroy. Jesus is what? He's the word made flesh. Keep the Sabbath. Why? Because our God is a God of rest. Our God is a God of rest. Honor your father and mother. 
Our God is a God of honor. Do not murder. Our God is a God of life. Do not commit adultery. Our God is a God who's committed. Do not steal. For our God is a God of gifts. Do not lie. Why? Because our God is a God of truth. Do not covet. Because our God is a God who satisfies. The people of Israel are given the law as a reflection of the very character of God. And as the people... As a people made in the image of God, when Israel practiced the law, they became more and more of who they were created to be. They actually became more whole. Think of it this way. You and I are made in the image of God. And you are made in the image of God in a fallen world. That's why we can look at a newborn baby and we can marvel. We can go, wow. There is wonder found in creation. But if we neglect the law, if we do not rest, if we are so bitter that we murder within our hearts, if we sexually desecrate the the temple that God has given us, if we build into the habit just that of a lying pattern, we actually become less human. We become less of his image bearers. We become less of the perfect mirror. We become less of what God created us to be. I think you all know this at your core, you, at least those of you that have been around and alive for it long enough. We all have met bitter and angry people. And they are so bitter and angry, that their eyes, their their very face has changed shape. Their jaw is always tight. Their fists are always clenched. And any child that approaches them and sees them immediately steps back because they know at their core something is wrong. When that happens... They are less reflection of an image of God than they would be if they had followed the law. Do you see? Same thing with rest, keeping the Sabbath. We know what it does to the body when we do not rest. It destroys it. It destroys it. We have been created both for work and rest. But we break God's law. And we don't just do it accidentally, we do it deliberately. And in the process, it makes it easier for us to sin. We create pathways for the expediency of sin for the next broken law. We create pathways for the expediency of sin for the next broken law. I want you to think of it like a line in the beach or a hole on a dusty road, right? When the beach in the morning, I got to do this a lot on my vacation. When you walk the beach, it's flat. It's beautiful, right? When you're on a a newly, not paved, but a newly kind of road that's smooth, it runs easy. But when we sin, we draw a little line in the sand. And it changes it. 
And the second time we sin, that line or that pothole becomes a little bit more deep and a little bit more thorough to the point that at some point we have sinned so much that we can't help but fall into those patterns. We can't help but fall into those potholes that we've put along the road. We can't help but notice it and fall into it. Think about it this way. It's why it's hard to lie to someone you care about the first time. The first time. And then the second time, it's just a little bit easier. And the tenth time, we're a professional. And it becomes not just something we do, but we become liars. Pathways to expediency. Right? And then lying to the next person you care about becomes easier too. Same thing with something like porn. First time you might feel guilty. Second time, it's a little bit easier until finally it's an addiction you can't break alone. Sin is like that. And in the process, we break God's law, which is a reflection of who he is. And as image bearers, we become and bear less of his image. We become less human. And so that's what Israel did. If you know the story of the Old Testament, you see this. Israel ignored the law, and in the process, it's king. Moses went up the mountain and brought back the law, and they immediately broke it. They, like, they didn't even have like a 24-hour grace period, right? They're like, boom, that was fun. We thought you were gone. We built a calf. You know, it's nice. You see what the law, the Ten Commandments accomplished at the end of the day was showing us that we are incapable of keeping it. You and I are by our very nature lawbreakers. The fall has corrupted us so much that we desire the very things that will kill us. Talk to any addict. And we need someone to fill in the trenches that we have dug in the lives. We need someone to come in and cover the potholes. We need a savior. The next slide is not in your bulletin, but it's important. Okay? So if you're looking for it in your bulletin, it's not there. I apologize. Sending someone to go up the mountain to speak to God would not be enough. We need God to come down the mountain and speak to us. And that's what he does here in Matthew 5.1. Christ goes up the mountain, turns around, he sits down, ironically, probably on a rock, right? He didn't have a podium like I do. Teachers in that day would sit, everyone else would stand. Okay, we'll try that one Sunday. Y'all stand. I'm going to sit here on a really nice chair. That was common of the day. So now, just like Israel in Exodus, they are at the foot of the mountain, and the representative of God is about to speak to them. Except this time, it isn't just a man. It's the man God who speaks. It's Jesus of Nazareth. God has come off the top of the mountain and comes to the people at the base. And they see him face to face. They see God 
face to face. You see, later in Exodus, Moses returns to the mountain and he desires to see the face of God. This is an intimate request, right? For those of us that have have gone to weddings and have been married, there's a reason the veil is there, right? And suddenly you see the face of your beloved. It's an intimate request that is taking place with Moses. This is what the Lord said to Moses in Matthew, not Matthew, in Exodus 33:17 through 23. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do the request to see his face. For you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. The glory of God at that point with who Moses is and the sins he committed, he could not yet see the face of God. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back and my face shall not be seen. Moses sought the face of the Lord. Notice how this is not like a request that is cast away by God. God actually finds it a good request. He does not chastise Moses. The Lord desires his creation to know him. So he gives Moses all he can handle. He protects him by sheltering him within the rock. And on the mountain, he sees the back of God. But the people on the mountain around 30 AD near Capernaum, They saw the very face of the God of the mountain. John 14, 9 tells us, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen the Father has seen me. Sorry, I should have. I I deleted that next part of the verse. That was kind of important. I apologize. Whoever has seen me, the Father has seen me. This is our God. This is our God who in spite of our rebellion, in spite of our sin, in spite of breaking our law of the Lord, in spite of being image bearers that are so rusty that we don't even know the outline of what it used to be, he comes face to face with his people. He sat down, probably on a rock, and spoke with his disciples as the crowd watched and listened. I think as Americans, we miss the profoundness of this, right? Our king comes to us. Our Lord comes to us. No other religion and no other kingdom does the crown come to its people. It doesn't happen. He, come, he actually enters into those that are technically beneath him. We're American, right? So we think everyone else is beneath us, including God. And we want to make God in our image because, I mean, at the end of the day, I'm very important, right? Our God comes down to us. How profound. We spend our lives trying to show everyone else how important we are by playing God. 
When the whole time, all we needed to do was point to the one who was God. And it is there that we find real life. And God could have come to us in anger. Think about this. Jesus was within his right as king of the world to a rebellious people. He could have come to us in anger. He could have started the Sermon on the Mount with a very long list of grievances. Cursed are those who have rebelled against the king. Cursed have those who look at a man or woman lustfully who is not theirs. Cursed are those who lie. Cursed are those who oppress the poor. Cursed are you fill in the blank. I've rebelled against the holy God. And he would have been justified. But he doesn't. He doesn't open the Sermon on the Mount with that. Instead, what does he do? He actually offers blessing. The Beatitudes. He opens with blessing to a rebellious people. When we repent of our sin, which is what Jesus has called us to do, he doesn't meet us with a new list of laws, right? You've turned to follow me. Here's another 10 things I'd like you to work on, right? He doesn't do that. We don't repent of our sin. And he's like, okay, now before we move forward with our relationship, I would like you to suffer judgment for this crimes that you have committed against me. There's some sort of purgatory I want you to go through before you come and see me face to face. No, he doesn't do that. He offers us blessing. Does that mean that God doesn't care about justice and consequences? By no means. But he places that judgment and consequence on himself. And even though we deserve judgment, he is a God that offers us blessing. He offers us himself. We see more of whom God is in these blessings. Both in how it's a free gift. He didn't take tickets to the Sermon on the Mount. And how intimate it is, again, to see the very face of God. Listen again with fresh ears, right? He opened his mouth and taught them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's always a weird one. We'll get into that one next week. What's the poor in spirit? The poor in spirit can be defined by a poverty of arrogance. There are those who are humble, have humbled themselves before an almighty God. And it is these people God will do what? Give the very kingdom to. May we humble ourselves before the king of kings. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. If you hurt, Jesus saying, I will comfort you. We live with modern medicine. How many of the same ailments that exist in this room today that we take drugs for do those people not have as they listen to these words? Blessing to those who are meek, also translated as gentle. Blessing are those who desire righteousness, desire to follow the law of the Lord. Blessings to merciful people. Blessed are the pure in heart, the peacemakers. They are mine. Blessings to those who are persecuted. If the Ten Commandments, let me find it real quick. There we go. If the Ten Commandments reflected the very person of God, the Beatitudes reflect the very life Jesus is about to live. 
Jesus humbled himself, taking on the likeness of a man. He came to serve and not to be served. He hanged out with sinners and called them his people. Jesus would weep. We see him do that over and over again in scripture. He mourns for Jerusalem. He mourns for Lazarus. Our God knows what it is to hurt, to lose loved ones, to lose parents, to have friends betray him. Jesus knows mourning. Jesus would describe his very heart as meek and lowly in Matthew 11. The only place in scripture that Christ himself gives us or defines for us the very heart of God, he defines as meek and lowly, as gentle and lowly. It's the same word here in the Greek. Jesus desires to follow the will of his father. Over and over again, he says he does nothing outside of his father's commandments. We see Jesus be merciful to those who deserve it and over and over again to those who don't. There was no one more pure in heart than Jesus. For he was tempted in every manner as we were and was yet without sin. And as for being a peacemaker, think about it. There ain't no greater peacemaker than Jesus. He brought peace to the one relationship that we couldn't bring peace to. He brought peace between a holy and righteous God and his people. He's the ultimate peacemaker. And how would he do this? By being persecuted. By being persecuted. When we walk in the law of the Lord, we walk within the will of the Lord and we reflect his image. Likewise, when we find ourselves in moments of humility, mourning, wrestling for peace in the midst of persecution, those sound all like negative things, right? When we are there, we find ourselves within the very blessing of God. That's profound. And our Savior is right there beside us because he's experienced all those things. Seeing the crowds, Jesus would later ascend another mountain. He would not sit down at that time. He would be forced to stand as he was nailed to the tree. Most of his disciples would not come to him on that mountain. And while he was cursed, while the wrath of God was poured out upon him, his blessing would be poured out upon us. Because we have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, we now have the power to walk In the Beatitudes, the fruit of the spirit grows upon those who are in Christ. And we look forward with great anticipation to see him face to face. Do you know Jesus? Do you know this Messiah? Do you know the God of the universe? He has come down from the mountain on your behalf. To enter in a relationship with you. So the brokenness of sin no longer need define you. But the Savior who has healed you does. If you have never asked Jesus to be king of your life. May this morning be the day. Where Christ meets you at the foot of the mountain. And offers you the blessing of eternal life with him. And may we marvel at the Sermon on the Mountain.
Bow your heads with me. Father God, how intimate and gracious and merciful and gentle of a God you are that seeks after your people in the midst of rebellion and draws them to himself. Lord, for those of us that are in Christ, may we rest and and dwell within this text for the next few weeks. May we find time this afternoon to find ourselves within this text to set aside distractions and have the word of God speak to us. And for those of us that do not know the Lord yet, may we repent and believe the gospel today. May we see you for who you really are. A God who gives us law as a sign of blessing. A God who gives us his very self. So that he can have a bride in which to worship the Father with. Lord, this morning if there are people here that have never given their lives to Jesus... I pray that they would repent. They would cry out to God, Lord, wash me of my sin. Help me turn from my rebellion. And may I seek the King of Kings all the days of my life. And for those of us that are in Christ, may we marvel at the Savior who offers us not only the mountains, but the whole world. In your son's name I pray. Amen.